0: Welcome, everyone. I am Brian McCall, Editor-in-Chief of Catholic Family News, and happy to bring you another special report. Today, I'm very happy to be having a conversation with Dr. Robert Moynihan. Welcome to our show.
1: Thank you very much, Brian. Very, very happy to be here.
0: Uh, I'm sure many of our um, readers and listeners are familiar with Dr. Moynihan. We've reported on uh, several times on his letters, the Moynihan letters, some of the interesting revelations in those over the years. Uh, but for those who, who may not uh, remember, uh, he is the founder and editor of Inside the Vatican, uh, which has, uh, is a uh, real community Catholic journalism uh, icon, I think, in, in our country. There's a magazine, a website, uh, and we're going to be speaking today uh, particularly about a book uh, that Dr. Moynihan is in the process of publishing. Uh, just again, very brief background. Uh, he's had a, a really long and distinguished career, uh, but said, received his undergraduate degree from Harvard. And then as we were just discussing before the show, his uh, master's and PhD uh, was done at Yale. So I'm happy to see he was an equal opportunity user of the Ivy League. So he did uh, attend both of those. And uh, uh, today, what we're going to talk about is his forthcoming book, um, which is called Finding uh, Vigano, and again, as our, our uh, readers know, we have been uh, reporting on uh, the revelations, the, the statements of uh, Archbishop Vigano for, uh, for many for two years, over two years now, uh, and uh, we have mentioned that this book was forthcoming. Uh, And we're really happy to have its author here to discuss it. So here's the book, uh, the subtitle, In Search of the Man Whose Testimony Shook the Church and the World. You can pre-order it from inside the Vatican. There's a lot of options. Uh, You can have it personalized or autographed. And I guess I should ask, is that your autograph or uh, the archbishop's autograph that would come with it?
1: Well, right now, it's my autograph. (laughs) There were a tremendous interest. I might be able to bring some copies of the book through the Archbishop or uh, or send them to him and maybe he would sign them.
2: Ah, uh,
0: okay. <laughs>
1: but that that offer was really that I would sign them. That you
0: would, that's what I thought it meant. But uh, uh, so that's the book. Again, it'll be coming out in November uh, very shortly. And uh, we're happy to, to talk about it. So perhaps you can, uh, we can talk a little bit about the origin of the book first. You've obviously been uh, communicating and talking with his grace for for a long time. How did you, how did your relationship with Archbishop uh, uh, Vigano come about? How did you come to begin, uh, uh, get to know him and to begin corresponding and communicating with him?
1: I really think uh, the relationship began in 2013. Mm -hmm. I had not known him in his many years in the Roman Curia, which is kind of a surprise. I had followed his activities But he was a very discreet man. He wasn't often in press conferences. He was the classic man of the desk. And a very precise, very honest and honorable bureaucrat. Hmm. However, when I got to know him better, I understood ever more that he also was a man of deep faith. Because being a bureaucrat could be with or without faith. He would uh, get up every morning, all his years in Rome, and walk from his apartment into St. Peter's Basilica, vest to celebrate morning mass. And he would go usually at 7 a.m. And he would go to an altar in the far back left hand corner of the church. And that altar is dedicated to Mary, mother of the church, Mater Ecclesiae. a title given to her by Paul VI at the end of the Second Vatican Council, 1965. He said sometimes if that altar was taken by another priest a minute or two before, because it's sort of first come, first served every morning, he would then go to another altar of St. Gregory Nazianzus, the great theologian from the East, whose body is across the basilica on the right-hand side and just behind where St. Peter is sitting there, the statue of St. Peter, where people come up and touch his foot. So what I did not know shook me because I had been bringing pilgrims to Rome for 10 years from about 2008 and going into St. Peter's and taking them to that. Chapel and saying this is an important chapel because every other image in the Basilica of St. Peter's is a Is a mosaic This image is a painting and it's the only painting That's the image of mary in that chapel and it was from the constantinian basilica Which was torn down in the early 1500s to make way for this new michelangelo basilica, which is actually behind you in your Mm. In in, in the piazza there Behind your face Yes Um, So that had become my favorite chapel And it sort of was there at the back left hand corner The sort of cornerstone of St. Peter's Basilica And I was astonished to know that for years and years Archbishop Viganò had gone there And prayed and celebrated morning mass there I went to talk to him in 2013 in the nunciature in Washington and we started for about pretend uh, uh, thinking that we would have 20 minutes or 30 minutes and then we talked for about an hour and a half and we talked in a room there with no one else present and I said how did you come to be the nuncio because there was that whole issue of valid leaks how he had been sort of ousted Mm -hmm. from the vatican there were reports at the time that he would take charge of the vatican city-state the Governatorato, they call it in italian or that he might have been given authority over all the vatican finances and if he had, we probably would have had uh, clarity about the corruption yes. in those finances. And I was uh, astonished to hear the maneuvering that had gone into his removal from those key posts where he would have had authority uh, over other people and their shenanigans. So obviously, people wanted to be free of his oversight. Mm-hmm. And Pope Benedict hesitated and hesitated and finally told him that he would have a providential role to play by going away. And Viganò didn't believe it at the time, didn't understand it. Hmm. So we had this first conversation. I explained to him that I had grown up in America, but I'd grown up as kind of a a kind of last of the Middle Ages, in a sense. My, My first memories were of the, what we call the Old Mass, which Pope Benedict later was to call the extraordinary form, but for us it was nothing. It was extraordinary in that it was the presence of God, but it was not extraordinary in the sense that there was another ordinary form. It was the ordinary Sunday Mass. And that Latin went into my heart and my soul when I was an altar boy and learned those phrases in the book, the Missal, and trembled at times if I might stumble and make a mistake and somehow harm the integrity of the liturgy. I said, I've got to learn this correctly. Mm. And if there's any real reason that I eventually went on to Harvard and then Yale, it was rooted in that experience, to try to become precise, to get clarity. And strangely enough, my professor at Yale later made a joke It was a very famous Lutheran minister who became an historian of church doctrine and the development of doctrine. How the doctrines of the Trinity and the the maternity of Mary and the definition of her as mother of God, how these doctrines developed over decades and were then promulgated at various councils. The development of doctrine. And he said, there remain these these three things, Bob. Faith, hope, and clarity. <laughs> and the greatest of these is clarity. Well, it was a joke, but there is so much confusion, and clarity is where there is light, clarity is where there is reason. So I told Vigano that I was interested in clarity and reason, and that I had become a Vatican correspondent because I wanted to defend the church against her enemies within and without and i said often those enemies are blind sometimes they could even be converted Mm. but and i said also something that pope benedict had told me back in 2002 when he was still cardinal ratzinger and i asked him what is our problem because we the the scandal in boston had just broken out yes And I had a meeting with him in his apartment in Rome. And we sat talking for probably 45 minutes. And toward the end, I said, but all of these corruptions and scandals and the attacks on the authority and moral authority of the church, the diminishment of the moral authority of the church. Where is all this coming from? Where is the true enemy? And he said, we do have great enemies. And he spoke at that time of freemasonry that is a type of humanistic vision of the world which believes the world would be better if there weren't these divisive religious dogmas but he said also it's important for each of us to remember that our own lives and our own souls can be big impediments to the unity the mission to the witness of the church We are sufficiently Dangerous to the mission of Christ because of our own weaknesses and sins So that we do not need to look for external enemies Just look to your own heart and your own soul so Benedict had quite a few disappointments and problems and he finally resigned and uh, whether that was the master stroke, as some call it, or whether it was fleeing for fear of the wolves, I do not want to dare to say right now. Mm-hmm. But Vigano was at the right hand of John Paul II, at the right hand of Benedict, and then was ousted from Rome just before Francis was elected. Mm-hmm. And I then started, I said, can I come back and talk to you again? And he said, "Certainly, it was a pleasure talking with you." So, probably uh, two or three times every year, I would call when I was in America. I would often be in Italy, but uh, in those days, you would take a flight, and it would be costly, perhaps. But I find tickets at times for seven or eight hundred dollars. Sometimes going through Istanbul, yes. they have cheaper flights. Yes. <laughs> But uh you have to spend about eight hours in the airport in Istanbul, and then you go on to Rome. Uh, they hope that you buy some things there um, So Vigano and I got to know each other, and I never cited him once, and I would say a mark of my years has been that ninety percent of what I have heard I have not published wow. but. I've got a contract after the second Vigano book. I've got a contract to do my memoirs. So I expect to be telling a few stories before the end. Mm -hmm. Um, But Vigano was wrestling with all the problems, first in those Obama years, and then in the years after the, uh, he he left right right, uh, during the election campaign before Trump was elected. So, Viganò was in the last five years of the eight years of Obama. And in the middle of that fell the Pope's trip to America in September 2015. And in the middle of that trip fell the remarkable encounter between Pope Francis and Kim Davis. And yes. Archbishop Viganò asked me to help arrange that meeting and I said are you sure they'll be very controversial he said it's important that we leave a marker for someone to defend that that will say that for someone to regard marriage as between a man and a woman is not outside the pale is not Mm -hmm. something that must be forced to change. It's something that derives from the deep beliefs of our tradition and the fact that this woman has been imprisoned because she believes that, that that's an important...
0: Uh, and imprisoned you know, by a Catholic judge is always an interesting fact that I've commented on.
1: <laughs> so so that that sort of cemented, in a sense, our friendship. Hmm. He, he also allowed me to have a dinner at the Nunciature with members of an organization that strives to build bridges between the catholic church and the orthodox churches called Irby at Orby Hmm. and that was at Christmas time in 2014. So the 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 he turned 75 years old in January of 2016 Francis sent him a letter in April saying, I'm accepting your resignation because at 75 they submit that. Mm-hmm. And then in May, I believe he returned to Rome. So I saw him then in Rome and I said, uh, What are you going to do now? And he said, I'm thinking over what to do. But he said, The situation is very serious. And I said, Well, how serious? He says, Very serious. There is a type of spirit which is no longer Christocentric. It's no longer centered on Christ. It's centered on, on man, on, on the issues of concern to man. But the, the fact about man that is most important to remember is that man is
2: not himself unless he transcends himself. Man is not man unless man is greater
1: than man and is approaching the the son of god and god himself divinity Mm -hmm. we are called to a relationship and even in the most dramatic way uh theologically speaking we are called to divinization we are called to to share in the very life of christ and the life of god but if this is forgotten and we are given only earthly life and earthly bread and earthly health care and earthly justice we lose the most precious the most profound part of our nature. And I said, I agree with all that. I said, this is actually the entire point of everything I've been doing all these years. Mm. And uh, he said, well, let's meet and talk about what we can do. He says, I'm thinking that maybe I should write something. And so we, uh, a year passed, 2017 came and I was in Rome in the summer after having been in Russia. I've been in Russia every year for 20 years. Working to try to understand what that was the communist 70 years where the faith was almost annihilated, where many millions of people were imprisoned, thousands of churches were blown up. There used to be more churches dedicated to Mary in Russia than in any other country yes. in the world. Yes. Anyway, and I'm f- of course interested in the question of the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And I have hope that there will be a period of peace granted to the world. Hmm. I've done as much as I can to try to work in whatever small way I can for that. And I talked about these questions with Viganò as well, but in the summer of 2017 we met outside at the top of the Janiculum Hill. There's a big statue of Garibaldi and we sat on a bench
0: I know the spot, (laughs) yes.
1: He had a baseball cap on, one of those green benches with little narrow green boards, Hmm. kind of curved, and he said the corruption is reached unheard of heights. Children are being abused, seminarians, everything is being covered up. There's kind of a conspiracy of silence. There's money being deviated, and the faith as a separate issue or an even higher issue. It's not just abuse and financial corruption It's apostasy from the faith He says I don't know why it's come so clear to me now and why all these years I was less troubled by it But as I reflect on my life and as I think about the fact that I'm getting old I must speak out. He says what can we do? I said well What do you want to do? He says I want to tell The story of McCarrick. I want to tell what I know, what I told Pope Francis. I want to tell what I know as I was working in the Secretary of State, and the first reports started coming in in the early 2000s, and I had them on my own desk. And I want to tell that story. I want to have a a testimony. And I said, "Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a task, which." is a very difficult one you'll be placing your reputation and your moral integrity on the line some people may attack you and he said i'm going to try the best i can for the moment you try to write articles as you have been doing as best you can to defend the faith and i will prepare my project that was a year before So he went those next 12 months into a deep period of prayer and reflection and he started to gather his documents and clarify his thought about his career as a centrally placed Vatican official who had always been a good soldier. Mm -hmm. And three things happened in the summer of 2018. On June 20th, the Archdiocese of New York said, We accept that allegations against Cardinal McCarrick are worthy of credit That's the first time that had happened mm. that there had been abuses that they thought were were believable on august uh, what was it? Was it the tenth or fourteenth of august I'm sorry, I think it might be I'm oh, sorry. This thing off. Sorry about
0: that. The uh, the grand jury report is that
1: the Pennsylvania grand yes. jury report. I think it was the fourteenth of. August.
0: I think it was the fourteenth.
1: Yes, and they said there are hundreds of cases and a couple thousand priests involved over sixty years. And of course, the first time you hear such things, you say, "Well." some of these must be exaggerated, some of these must be false. There's so many people who want to bring down the church, so many people. But then the Attorney General has said that many had been investigated and they were certain that there was a a lot of uh, uh, fire where there was smoke and, and charges. And in America, everyone, every day for those following days was saying, what has happened to our church?" How is this possible? How has the church, the pearl, the the beautiful bride of Christ become so filthy, so fallen? And it was just 11 days after that, on the 25th of August, that Vigano finally released his testimony. And he said, what's happened is that a culture of cover-up from middle rank up to the top, has turned a blind eye or even promoted because when there is this type of corruption, it's even useful to people to have a promotion of someone who is blackmailable or is somehow open to be pressured. So these people rose higher and higher in the church until it was kind of strangled. And there was the double strangulation of moral turpitude and doctrinal apostasy. So suddenly we had a d- description, a denunciation, and a call for reform and for purification that extended all the way to the very top. And at that moment, there was a defensive reaction and a charge that these allegations were exaggerated or that they reflected uh, isolated cases and so the battle began which is still continuing for the control of the narrative and the real acceptance of our fallen stat status or a true repentance and purification of, of our church. And this is the battle of our lifetimes.
0: Hmm. Well, they're certainly the terms the Archbishop speaks in, in terms of the the importance of what's going on. If I could pick up on one thing, that was a fascinating recounting of the, the those years leading up to the first intervention in the summer of 2018, some people have, have wondered, in, in looking what's happened since then, um, did did Archbishop Vigano approach this project as exposing the abuse and the, the um, as you say moral turpitude, and then move on to other issues, or was it a single project? And I found it interesting towards the end when you said he saw these two things as connected, that... the the abuse and the the things he denounced, the specific acts he talked about in his testimony, but then the undermining of the doctrine is intimately connected to that, which he's been writing about uh, almost daily, it seems like, at least weekly for for the past several months. Um, do Do you think that that connection was there from the beginning, that he saw this whole project of what he needed to say as really touching both of those points, or was it a development that he saw the the practical moral implications, and then dealt deeper into the doctrine after that?
1: The, the story that I know is that after he published his testimony, which was focused on this moral corruption, but which included a few sentences and a few phrases speaking mm-hmm. about a type of doctrinal deviation, modernism, which he identified even in that testimony as emerging in the Jesuit order. Mm -hmm. I wrote to him by email. I said, can I talk to you? Could I meet with you? He said, I've gone into hiding. When the time comes, I will let you know the autumn of 2018 passed by, the winter of beginning 2019, the spring of 2019, and then in the summer of 2019 I got a text message and he said give me a call. Hmm. So I called him and he said I think the time has come for us to talk again. And He said, I've just given a long interview of the Washington Post. I said, why did you do that? (laughs) (laughs) But um, he said, no, there's other things that I have to talk about with you. And it has to do with the Jesuit order and the history of the slow acceptance inside the Catholic Church of principles and doctrines which are not Catholic. And I said, okay, I've got a trip scheduled once again to Russia. And he said, okay, when that trip is over, you come to find me and we'll talk and I'll explain everything. And I said, well, you're going to have to tell me where you are. He said, "I'll, I'll call you in a couple of weeks and I'll tell you. And in fact, I was in Moscow when I got the call and he said, this is where I am. And uh, uh, he said, write it down in a note, but I don't want to send it by email.
2: Mm.
1: And uh, I said, well, you're not afraid of the phone call being tapped. He says, well, I'm I'm using a special VPN where I change Mm. from Thailand to Japan, Indonesia, every few seconds. So I, I think he felt, so he gave me the name and address of a place where I should go. And he said, I'll meet you there. And so I went there at the end of July last summer and then as we started to talk I realized that he was a man still very undecided about what path to take and I believe that during the days that we spoke together he recovered a certain balance and he decided that he would take the course he has taken. So, in answer to your question, at the beginning it was bureaucratic because his life was the life of a bureaucrat. But his life was also the life of a priest and a bishop, a supporter of seminaries and seminary instruction, the life of someone who celebrates daily mass, who thinks about eternal matters. And as he went into retirement and reflected on what the church needed, He increasingly came to understand that the church needed fidelity to the doctrines of the faith. Hmm. And it didn't need to become trendy and a kind of handmade of the world. Hmm. And therefore, step by step, I said, do you have a plan? He said, no, no plan. The spirit will lead me. And each issue that emerges, I will try to my best ability to confront and to give what is the Catholic position. As I come up, as I understand it and he said, you know, I can even make mistakes. He said, you can help me <laughs> wow. He said, uh, he said I I don't know all the history. I don't know the history of all the councils. I don't know Why the second Vatican Council was declared pastoral and rather than doctrinal and whether that means That it truly is not necessary to regard it as teaching anything of doctrinal uh, uh A doctrinal authority that revises or changes anything and I said you know there is a lot of thought among scholars and theologians that that particular phrase that the council is pastoral not doctrinal does provide such a cover for anyone who feels that they were woven into the conciliar documents little phrases that were sort of traps and trying to Mm. change doctrine. You you don't have to change doctrine. There was nothing declared, this is the doctrine, and let him be anathema who doesn't agree. There was no phrase in the council. And in almost all previous councils there was such a phrase.
0: So the process you described there, very interesting over those those that year, particularly 2018 through 2019. Are you able to share with us as the Archbishop went through this learning or this studying were there any authors or particular books that you know were uh, Influential in his thinking developing
1: Well, I know first of all it was continually The celebration of the mass and prayer. Hmm. And it was attempt in a sense to purify his mind To reflect on god and on man on on righteousness and sin and On the role of the church as an Mm ark The new ark that saves men from the flood which was water at that time, but now it's vibrations on the internet and uh, the flood of ideas and even Ideological concepts and imposed politically correct thought which are attacking our souls and so to defend us from these things he hesitated before making any definitive break because he loves the church and he still in my view retains that position he is calling out all the day long for everyone whether it be mccarrick which he to whom he wrote an open letter to speak and to repent Yes. Say, we've been handed this treasure. We are earthen vessels. We are fallible men, but we've been handed a treasure of eternal value, a holy treasure. The doctrine and truth of the church, of the life of Christ, of his sacrifice, of the redemption of mankind. And we have regarded it as of little value, something that we can manipulate, something that we can even. Hmm. Abandon. And he's calling all of us back to an embrace of our faith. And in that regard, it's important that all who are on the side of tradition feel a certain pride in the way that they have kept the faith.
0: Hmm. So you, you mentioned, I think in that answer is part of this, the the most the most significant influence is his prayer life and and offering the mass. Are you able to say when uh, the archbishop? Because he, he's made it clear he he offers uh, only the traditional Latin mass. Now when did he when was it as, that he switched over, for lack of a better word, or began using the uh, ancient rite? Or again, so many different ways to refer to it. What Benedict called the extraordinary form as his his. His daily mass?
2: I don't
1: know the exact day, but it was within the past two years.
0: Two years. Okay. No, that's helpful. And, and then I guess returning to my first question beyond, and I agree with you, that must must be, uh, because I know in all of my life, <laughs> talking with people, you can have people read at lots of things, give lots of information, but unless there's a channel of grace, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily change the way they think. But, but are there any, do you know if there are any particular sources or, or things that he's been reading that uh, were really instrumental in his coming to the realizations that he shared with us?
1: Um, I think he read several books about the Second Vatican Council, and he read books about the history of the Jesuit order. Okay. And uh, Dr. De Mattei, Roberto De Mattei, wrote a history of the council, which is critical of the trendiness and the sort of... uh, the sort of wide open acceptance of things in the world, which the church prior to that had said could be dangerous. And that came in with all of the other things that we joke about, you know, <laughs> they, that the, nun, the nuns took off their habits and put on skirts and makeup because they didn't want to be seen as kind of a hierarchical, existing sort of icon Mm. over against ordinary men and women in society this was our which which there is a certain logic that we are men among men we are people normal we are we are fallible we are earthen vessels Mm. but the church had built up a number of practices which would protect us from too easy a fall just as you in your home would protect your child against falling against a corner and 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 slicing their head, or you would you would put some coverings around the sharp corners, so in a maternal way, the church had for two thousand years observed the human soul and said, "If we do these things, there will be less immediate and catastrophic dangers uh, to fall into addictions and drug abuse mm. and things." That even in those cases, the Lord can bring forth and transform and heal. But it's not a pleasant process to suffer and to be in the pit of confusion and and, uh, become suicidal. And uh, the church as a mother offered moral, pragmatic teachings, which were abandoned in large measure after the Second Vatican Council. I did speak at length with my own father about this, who grew up, he born in 1926, and studied mm. for the priesthood. My uncle was a Catholic priest, a Franciscan, and both said there were elements of our preconciliar, so-called preconciliar church, that were scrupulous, uh, scrupulosity, that were sort of um, oriented towards reasoning through uh, moral questions in a way that seemed punctilious, counting Hail Marys, counting uh, different acts of sacrifice and then saying this will provide me with a few more days Mm -hmm. out of purgatory or or a higher seat in heaven. It was something about this that was not at the core and essence of the catholic tradition but was a kind of development which needed perhaps pruning but to reject entirely the concept of a supernatural life or of supernatural grace or the need for conversion repentance sacrifice this was the tragic exaggeration of the modernism of the second vatican council that infiltrated many of the religious orders and has become commonplace in our church today. And it's finally this that I think that Viganò came to realize and has now widened the, as, as you said, rightly, almost daily writing, <laughs> because he, he feels impelled by the Spirit. He says to me in the book I haven't quoted, I know I'm moving too fast, but the situation is serious and I have no choice.
0: Well, it's interesting, your your comment on the Preconciliar period, because we we hear and much of what I've written, have talked a lot about that, that there's clearly was a, a dramatic change at the Second Vatican Council, but there are, the problems didn't just start there. There were problems from many directions before it. But one of the things I've often said is that the problem with the items your family pointed out, the, the maybe the shallow aspect of focusing on externals or, or some formalistic things, was really a need for pushing greater spiritual direction and greater development of the interior life because it's the same thing with prayer life right children have to start with a vocal prayer you can't have a three-year-old do a meditation and they have but the goal of the spiritual life is to progress to use those things as a as you say as a, a protection that you don't do nothing right that you don't just fall and become worldly but to to sort of grow with them and and, and deepen and, and that's maybe the call that was due in the mid-20th century is a call to transcend some of those forms not throw them out but to see the, the where they're leading the deeper uh interior life uh but rather than just sweeping them aside and having having nothing in place so i, I really emphasize a lot with the the those comments you made um I guess coming, coming, we haven't really talked about the book yet because this has been fascinating, but maybe you can share for us. I know the description of the book talks about is conversations with, with Archbishop Vigano. So is the book completely a sort of interview format, question answer, or are there sort of a mixture of, uh, is it more expository where you, uh, based on those conversations, talk about things? Maybe share a little bit of what the style of the book is. It's
1: about half interview. And then the rest is my presentation in the way that I've been doing with you. What the book does is present the man. Who is Vigano? I wanted to find him. Hmm. I wanted to find in a way the way you want to find. Why did he start denouncing clerical abuse and end by calling for a profound spiritual recommitment
2: Hmm. in our
1: church or spiritual renewal? And what effect does that have on the current leadership? So it's a Finding Viganò, perhaps it's a a title that's a little too offhand, but I thought it it might be interesting. Finding Viganò, finding his family, finding his childhood, his conversion, uh, his uh, priestly vocation, the, the work that he did, incredible work. He actually was in the office just behind where you are sitting in the background of, of your photograph. Mm. That's the Apostolic Palace behind there. and Those glass walls are the Secretary of State. Mm. He was working in those offices for years. His task was to oversee all the diplomats and all the personnel of the Vatican. He had the personal biographies of everyone working there on his desk or in his wow in his file cabinets and and when people sent in complaints if they were serious so not all the frivolous ones but if they were serious they reached his desk and then he would say this i judge serious and he would send it on to the secretary of state the secretary of state and to the pope
2: Hmm.
1: he was about sixth or seventh man as one of the top assistance of the substitute as the man in charge of all pontifical delegations and all personnel. So he knew the inner workings of the Vatican and he decided that the life of the church was in danger and that the requirement to keep the seal, the oath of silence, the oath of pontifical secret, could not be maintained in a situation when the very life of the church was in danger. This mm-hmm. will be a, the question that future scholars and future members of the church will will judge him on with differing views, but he took his stand and decided to speak his truth
0: very much like i think and he's written on this on um, the duties of obedience and when one uh you know must disobey in order to obey and i think you're right very much like there's been to this very day extensive discussion of the acts of another archbishop archbishop marcel lefebvre uh, who didn't make the same choice in terms of the, the pontifical secret and when to speak out but when obedience in his view could no longer be maintained to defend the faith. Uh, So a a similar process, it sounds like, of thinking those two archbishops went through.
1: Oh, Lefebvre. I have a couple of things to add on Lefebvre. Yes. I knew, I I didn't know him. I Mm -hmm. was near to him. He must have passed down the corridor as I was coming in or out. Hmm. I was in Rome of May of 1988 when he was... We he on yes. The, we actually, I think it was, I think it was the eighth of May, and he went to meet with Joseph Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict. And John Paul had been Pope for ten years, and yes. they had they had entrusted to Pope to to Ratzinger, Ratzinger yes the the task of reconciling in some way with Monsignor Lefebvre. So they had days and days of. Back and forth. And then they had this they meeting in the Holy Office in Rome, yes a little bit to the left of where you are sitting. Yes. I look at you. yes And um, Lefebvre signed.
0: The May he, 5th protocol, yes. May 5th it was. Yes.
1: He signed. He went then in his car out to Albano, beyond yes. Pastella Gandolfo, where they had a little center. And he told the few friends there, he said that, he told them what he had done. And then he said, now I'm going to go into the chapel. As far as I know, um, I was told by one of those friends who was with mm. uh, him. I was told that he went into the chapel and spent most of the night there. And in the mm. morning he said, I cannot trust. Yes. That, that that my signature will not be the cause of the 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 the, the enemies of the of the tradition in the church finding a way to prevent the continuation which has been promised to me under the terms of this agreement because they will find some way mm-hmm. to a loophole or to not to point the, the bishop that uh, that I would approve of or mm-hmm. there'll be some way. And so he told them that the agreement was off. Mm-hmm. That's how close we were. Yes. To never having had this. But it's also how close we were to having it merged back in in a form which was still perhaps not entirely protective of tradition. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I have a certain sympathy for him.
2: Mm-hmm. I,
1: I met I met Cardinal Theon Doom from the country where Lefebvre yes. was a bishop and a renowned and esteemed and beloved yes. bishop by the Africans in Senegal. Hmm. And um Doume said to me in the 1990s in Rome, he said, Archbishop Lefebvre was a holy man. In 50 or 60 yes. years, he will be canonized. Mm-hmm. and i said you're a cardinal in the church and this man is reviled widely he, yeah. said, he said i am i am a particular cardinal i grew up in the country where he was our uh, evangelist where he was our where he brought the word of god to us i can never forget that i can always venerate him
0: mm-hmm. no it's uh, your description of the, the night of may 5th and 6th i think accords with what uh, Bishop Tissier de Maureret reports in his definitive biography on, on Lefebvre. But but what's also about that book is important is many people, maybe pretty young people today, only think about Lefebvre as the maybe the last 20 years of his life, as everything he did. But it's interesting, in that book, you don't get to 1980 or 1970 until maybe three quarters of the way through the book. And the in, in life he led as the, the missionary priest and then the apostolic delegate and bishop in africa is uh, really a, a fascinating story which is why i often recommend that that biography because i don't think you can understand the man without uh, if you just look at it through the lens of 1970 to 91 but um but returning to i guess maybe try to wrap this up a little bit it's been been fascinating um, one of the things Archbishop Vigano has written about in the past few months is a critique, um, it's probably the right word, of the Pope Benedict's hermeneutic of continuity. So he's written quite extensively uh, about that and and flaws he sees in it as an approach to the Second Vatican Council. Do you, um, do, do you think he had, given his relationship with Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI before, do you think that was a difficult decision for him to, uh, again, disagree. I think there's not really a better word for it, but disagree with the approach proposed by Pope Benedict.
1: Well, I, I look at the photograph behind you. I see St. Peter's, yes. Square, and I see on the left side, there, there's a big doorway, and there's the steps. That area is called the Sagrato, the area mm-hmm. in front of, just near to the front of the bishop. Within the first days of the Vatican II Council, a young 35 year old German professor priest named Joseph Ratzinger, Father Joseph Ratzinger, mm-hmm. was standing on those steps with mimeographed leaflets, handing them to each bishop as they came out, mm-hmm. saying, We must reject the schema prepared by the Curia. We must open the church to allow a true spiritual council to meet the needs of our age. Already earlier in our conversation, we touched on perhaps a very useful way to understand what they thought they might do and what they hoped they could do. But we didn't touch on the fact that both of those positions could be radicalized.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I believe that Joseph Ratzinger, people talk about Viganò changing his position, or, yes. but Joseph Ratzinger had an evolution in his thought. And of course, people who love the church want to try to save the church as best they can.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if they see something has been, as they say in Italian, strumentalizzato, has been exploited beyond reason for nefarious purposes, That is, to make the church worldly, to make the church forget her tradition. If they see that there's a danger, they try, without rejecting all the people they worked with and knew throughout their lives, they say, let's all of us look and see where we may have gone wrong. And Bigano has said that many times. He said, I myself never objected to this for decades. Yes. So there is a certain humility in Viganò, which I would stress, which I would stress in my book. And I think it's needed throughout the hierarchy. But, and Ratzinger has shown it as Pope Benedict, he showed it. Now, the greatest day in his pontificate was the 7th of July in 2007. But I remember all during 2005 and 2006 and early 2007, People were saying, what will Joseph Ratzinger do about the tradition, about the liturgy in particular? There were rumors of this and rumors of that. And there were, I went to talk with Cardinal Malcolm Ranjith, who's now in Colombo, Sri Lanka. And he was then a secretary at the liturgy congregation. And I said, what's the story? What's what's happening? And he said, Pope Benedict would like to allow the use of the traditional liturgy. But bishops from all over the world and cardinals are flying into Rome saying, Holy Father, don't do that. You'll split the church. You'll show a type of dangerous revisionism. And you'll be considered anti-Vatican too, which opened up in the new liturgy, a de-clericalization of the church, which was in a certain way, we were referring to that when we spoke of a certain Uh, scrupulosity and um, externality that in some ways did characterize the old pre-conciliar church. So the effort of any thoughtful Catholic has to be, how can we keep all of this together and have the tradition restored but have the true sentiment of love of God without externality and calculation fill real a true springtime of the holy spirit the problem is nobody is really willing willing to do that and when joseph ratzinger issued that statement on july 777 july 7 2007 yeah it's the
0: 777 that landed in the church yes
1: (laughs) and he said we never we never abrogated the old mass we cannot abrogate a mass that was celebrated by saints for centuries it's impossible but there's still a question about what exactly are the parameters and what the bishops can permit and not permit and they have prudential decisions to make Mm -hmm. and there are exaggerations that can occur as you return to tradition as you embrace Uh tradition as you accept the fact that we're part of a church not uh, 55 years old but 2000 years old but there are many things in that tradition which we have to be as, as 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 believers and as scholars and as people of of goodwill we have to recognize and discuss how to take what is good and 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 emphasize that and develop it and never let go of it and not abandon it and and try to save every aspect of it if we can. So I, I think that's what Ratzinger tried to do, that's why he developed the hermeneutic of continuity. What Bigano finally recognized is that that's a patch and that the thing mm. <laughs> it's like you you must have some object in your house or something you think should I patch this one more time? Or, <laughs> or is, is it
0: time it to just redo it?
1: it? Yes. Putting some straw or some weaving <laughs> some straw in the bottom of a basket and the basket is rotten all around and the thing will just fall through again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You're wasting your effort. We need to be returned to a true evangelical understanding. A church that is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Mm-hmm. And all of the church's history is, 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 our, is our home. And we shouldn't be in the desolation as if everything prior to 1965 was benighted. That's mm-hmm. impossible. And you, and you and I as yes. medieval historians are, uh, believe that professionally.
0: Yes. Well, unfortunately, we don't have time, but that would be a, another fascinating topic for a discussion and another book, Finding Ratzinger, I think, because uh, his story, as you allude to, is uh, more complex, I think, as, no, as, as, than I, people...
2: I,
1: I had about twenty-five interviews with him as yes. I did with Vigano, and I had them taped, and I have them still. Mm. I kept asking him for his position on these matters, and I never could come to the end. Mm. One day he turned to me and he said, "I'm going to start speaking with another journalist, uh, Peter, Peter Seewald." Yes, and out of that became a very, very fruitful collaboration and the great books. So I, in a sense, may have disappointed Cardinal Ratzinger, and I mm. tried. To make up for it in this book about Dr. Bishop Vigano. There'll be a second book. There'll be a second book with all of these questions, the writings and his development into these other questions, which is
0: almost done. Oh, well, so read this one quickly so you're ready for the second. Yes, and I
1: I just wanted to say the end of the book is a book, uh, it speaks of hope, and our hope can never end, no matter if all gets dark and it seems like we'll be dominated by sort of weird demented powers that mm. will as as the Soviets did to the Christians in Russia. They will put them in frozen concentration camps in Siberia if they baptize their children. The world has passed through terrible periods of persecution. We so far have had kind of a velvet persecution in mm. our Western societies but in some ways it's been more effective at eradicating the the, the humus the soil of the faith than even that direct attack that the East attempted. I feel that we must be steadfast and humble. We must remain committed to all of our with whom we are united the communion of the saints all who went before us and suffered that we might enjoy today what they provided And we hand on to those who come after us the same faith Semper Edom, as mm. Cardinal Ottaviani would say that was his motto. Yes And uh, Viganò's motto is shio cui Credidi I know Whom I have believed
2: mm.
1: Christ it's Christ so Viganò is now going to turn 80 years old in September. I don't think his run has finished. He is still very, very clear-minded and his activity is very disciplined. You asked about what he reads, he also reads the internet. He reads regularly everything and we exchange uh, articles that we find interesting in relation to these matters that we've discussed but at the end of the book we have a discussion what is our situation and he said our situation is a little bit like that of Don Camillo in an Italian story who is a priest in a village where the communists have come to power and he stands he kneels in front of the cross in his church and he says Lord how is it possible that we have so many devastations in devastations in the church? And the Lord says, "Are you of so little faith? Do you not believe that I won the victory?" And so I said to Archbishop Vigano, "What what then happens?" And he says, "This cross says to Don Camilo, just as when a river overflows its banks, all of the contadini, the peasants, they." rush to their barns and they lift up their seed stocks and they bring them to the second floor or even onto the roof so that they will not get wet so they will not turn rotten so that after the flood passes they will have dry seed to re-sow their fields and so they will live and flourish again this is what we are doing with the church we are Taking the doctrines and the faith of our fathers up to the second floor or even onto the roof, keeping it dry, protecting it from this massive flood of trendiness. And we are doing it for those who come after so that they will still have the seed of the faith in time to come.
0: Well, I think that's an excellent note to end on, because I, like you, uh, have commented, uh, like you just said, I have commented both on the humility of Archbishop Vigano, which is a model for all of us, that clearly comes through his writing, but also in this last point, his great optimism, that notwithstanding the grave matters that he discusses, he always seems to end his interviews or his his letters with a, a real call to hope, to supernatural hope, that we cannot let these things discourage us, that uh, the victory is already ours, even if we are in the midst of a difficult battle. So uh, I think I can only imagine that reading the, this book will give hope uh, to to our listeners and will be a, a good a source of consolation to have a, a true shepherd Uh, to be among us and to speak among us. So a reminder to our our, uh, listeners, the book is called Finding Vigano and it is written by Dr. Robert Moynihan. Uh, Includes, as we heard, uh, the actual words of Archbishop Vigano himself in some of uh, back and forth interview as well as description and setting by Dr. Moynihan. It is available from Inside the Vatican. I'm happy to tell our viewers, uh, thank, and thanks to, to uh, Inside the Vatican. If you enter promotion code CFN15, so CFN for Catholic Family News 15, uh, by listening to this and hearing that code, that will give you a $15 discount. Uh, on, on the book. So we're grateful to Inside the Vatican to make that promotion available to our, our listeners. Again, CFN 15, and that'll be in the uh, link to where you can buy the book from Inside the Vatican will be in the notes for the, for the show. Uh, and again, if you've enjoyed this podcast, this video, I uh, encourage you to, to like it, share it. Um, uh, this is the first time I've had the opportunity, the pleasure really to interview Dr. Moynihan. It's really been, I think, a fantastic conversation. So please share this with people you know. Uh, As I always say, you never know what will reach a particular person's soul, what they listen to or hear. You know, we, sometimes we formulate arguments, but sometimes that's not what touches someone. They hear something, you just give them something to listen to or read. and, And that is what God uses. So please share this content. If you enjoy our free content, please consider subscribing to Catholic Family News on our website for our monthly publication. Well, thank you again, Dr. Moynihan. It really has been a pleasure. I've, I've read uh, your writings for, for many years, but it was really a pleasure to, to have a conversation with you and, and to uh, get to speak with you.
1: Thank you very much, Brian, and uh, I'd be happy to speak with you again on another occasion.
0: Thank you. <laughs>